0: I realize that everybody's crazy A woman's voice reminds me To serve and not to speak Am I myself or just another freak? You know there's fire in the hall And nothing left to burn no way left to turn, no, no With a cough, I shake it off And walk around my yellow stripe Should I hide or read my pride Or wait until it's good and right My life is boiling over It's happened once before I wish someone would open You know there's fire in the hole And nothing left to burn I'd love to run
1: Welcome to the Tom Dupree Show for our financial hour. Joining us, Mike Johnson, Chad Sturgill, our host, Tom Dupree, and we are powered by Dupree Financial Group. All right, let me
2: tell you why I'm playing this song. Because I've been listening to a guy named Rick Beato on YouTube, and he interviews a guy named Michael Omardian, who played the piano on one of the Steely... songs and I began to listen to again back to their first album called can't buy a thrill and this is a song from that album called fire in the hole and I know I heard it one time years ago but I hadn't really listened to it in a long time and it's an incredible song that's uh Donald Fagan on the keyboards Um, which was just an incredible piano solo there. Um, And here's a comment from one of the people. Extremely poetic, and the tonality modality sits beneath the lyrics in a way Robert Frost would compose if he were musically inclined. It's very poetic, and it has elements of Elton John. It has elements the, the the pedal steel thing sounds a little countryish, but it's also jazz and that was why Steely Dan sort of took the world by storm when they came out in nineteen seventy two and I don't think they did a ton of albums, maybe eight or ten, nine or ten at at most. Uh but every one of their albums was kind of a separate sort of piece of art and we'll play another song from that album uh in a in the second half of the hour but anyway I just you know kind of yeah. interesting
3: I'd never heard that before the chord progression on that piano I mean it was just so cool in the little licks that they do between the progressions and was- and
2: the guitarist is uh Skunk Baxter the you know played really? with the Doobie Brothers yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because Walter Becker would also play the guitar, but um, Jeff skunk Baxter um, was on was was a guy that played with them quite a bit. Huh. They would they were kind of notorious for using um, you know session musicians because they did not like to perform live. Um, uh, Donald Fagan was very shy about performing in front of crowds. Hmm. Now, later on, he kind of got okay with it. Could have been the money. I don't know. <laughs> but in the in the early part, he was not at all. He didn't even like to perform in front of the studio musicians. He wanted to kind of be off in a room by himself. Oh, wow. So. Hmm. Okay, well, that's it for this um. Uh, Half of the show. <laughs> yes. what, what else y'all next, want to talk next about? Next segment. Right, yeah, let's let's move on to the next segment. All right, no, no, go ahead.
3: Lay, lay the groundwork here. Um, so, looking at you know current demographics in the U.S., um, we we talked briefly about this a couple weeks ago, um, but I want to use this as kind of the the foundation, uh, kind of launching pad. But more Americans are turning 65 this year than in any prior time in history. Um, Does
2: that count dog years? I don't think so.
3: <laughs> that would be uh, what, like nine in dog years? Yeah. Ten. So there will be about 4.1 million Americans that will reach 65 years old this year, um, and that will peak at around 2027, 2027. Um, and so, you know, that's about 11,200 people a day turning 65. So you have an aging demographic um, that has its own repercussions in terms of uh, labor force um, uh, efficiencies that will have to come through technology, AI, the different things that that has its own repercussions. But when you think of it from uh, the investment standpoint and how life will be changing for people over the next 10 years, people that are moving in that age 65 is going to be the largest cohort that and over the next 10 years, how life will change that Things that they've been planning for now—they're going to be, you know, be an income stream, or maybe a change of career, or pure retirement, whatever it may be. There's going to be a lot of changes happening in the next
2: ten years. You know, when I was, I was with a company uh, for several years called Payne Weber, and uh, I worked really with them for five years at rotan mosley in houston texas from 83 to 88 and they had been bought uh by Payne weber and i began to get to know a little bit about them and then i started back with them again here in lexington on the brokerage side in 1990 in the early 90s uh they had a guy named ed kershner who was their chief investment strategist um Ed was a, a brilliant guy. He, he looked out a long way, and one of the things he also, um, when interest rates were nine or ten or eleven percent, he he made a call that the U.S. Treasury ten-year bond was going to drop all the way to six percent. At the time, it was like eleven or ten. Everybody thought he was crazy. And he said a lot of things that people thought were crazy. In fact, it finally cost him his job in 01 and 02 because he did not see the the dot-com meltdown coming. And he had people in a lot of stocks that blew a lot of folks up. But prior to that, one of the calls that he made was um, that, you would have this great amount of cash and money coming into the baby boomers. And so these people that are 65 are baby boomers. That's, Mm -hmm. they were born in the fifties, uh, 1958, 59 to be exact. And the ones that are turning 65, And uh, I was born in 56. Those are the baby boomers. That's the baby boom generation. What Kirshner said was that the baby boom generation is not only going to inherit quite a bit of wealth, but they're also going to leave a lot of wealth. And he talked about the consumer-driven economy, that the consumer's purchasing power was going to be what was going to drive the economy. It wasn't going to be the wholesale part of the economy it wasn't going to be uh industrial production per se it was going to be the consumer driving the train and what we're seeing now is basically the maturing this is 30 plus years after what what I don't even know what Ed's doing now he's probably still doing what he used to do somewhere but um it was um this is the maturing of the vision that he had in the early nineties. So let's say 1992, 93, 94. So we're now 30 years past that. And the thing, exact stuff that he said was going to happen is happening. Yeah. Now that's pretty good.
3: Well, and the, yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, The, the consumer driven economy, um, The other thing that people are living longer. So the people that are entering. And he
2: predicted that. Yeah. He predicted that same thing.
3: And it's it's interesting, the studies that they've been doing, that uh, like right now, uh, nearly 20% of Americans 65 and older were employed in 2023. That's about double the share that was working 35 years ago. So you're seeing people work longer. Um, you've, you've, you've heard us talking about that before. Uh, you know, right. that it's good to continue working. And close to two-thirds of those people that are working are working full-time. And that, that it runs the gamut of why they're doing it. Um, sometimes it's it's for the paycheck. Um, their average hourly earnings uh, are at, in 2023. We're running $22 an hour up from $13 an hour in 1987. And that's an inflation adjusted number. Um, so the, the people that are in that age group, they're working longer. Uh, that could be for the paycheck. Um, that could be for social interaction, uh, for, uh, just general, uh, well-being, uh, because you know, studies have shown you staying uh, active, engaged, that is good for health, mental health, and physical health. Um, so the the people are working longer, they're living longer, um, and the needs have changed over time. Yeah. Uh, cause you know, used to, uh, there's, uh, they interviewed a lady talking about her mother. Uh, and she said, you know, at age 65, uh, her mother was winding down. Well, this lady's getting ready to start a second career in something else. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of opportunities given that, uh, the economy is a more mature economy, that it's not uh, as much physical labor now that people have the ability to do things longer. Um, but one of the big needs uh, that's coming for this group is income. You know, They've, they've inherited and or saved you know, their whole life, and now they're moving into a phase where they might not need to replace all their income because they might start another job, but it might need to supplement
2: their income. I think that a lot of people, and I, I, I know it's hard, For people to do this, they will view, let's say they've got a $500,000 account. They view it as a $500,000 checking account. Yeah. It is very, very hard for people to think of their $500,000 IRA or brokerage account like you would a $500,000 rental property.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: You're not going to go in your rental property and cut out a door or a window and go sell it in order to get your income. You're going to get your income from the rental generated by the rental property. You want that sucker intact. You want those doors and windows to be working. You don't want to be cutting off a piece of it to go sell, you know, to, for your income. Cause you've now just devalued that building, right? You've now harmed the value of it by taking a piece of it and going and selling it. The same thing with your portfolio. If you can view your portfolio as an income generator rather than a big checking account that you would sell a piece of in order to to get some income, you might be able to not only hold onto your portfolio for a lot longer than you might have thought and even allow it to grow some, but you might be able to grow your income over time too. Now, certainly things come up from time to time where where you – have to get into the money and you can't, you don't have any choice. Yeah. And that's why you keep some of it in cash. But it seems to me that the average person views their account as something to be just liquidated over time and lived off of. And and they kind of have this idea that, you know, you don't hear if somebody saying, I'm going to hit the lottery and get a big wad of cash. You don't hear him saying, "I'm going to hit the annuity and and have uh, an annuitized stream of income for the next forty years." Yeah, that doesn't sound as sexy as hitting the lottery and having a couple of million dollars in cash after tax. Um, people don't take the whole ramifications of having uh, income into account. What, what is it to have wealth? Is it to have a whole bunch of money sitting in your bank account? No, that's, that's to have money.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Money does not necessarily equal wealth. Wealth is something where you have invested wealth that will produce income for you enough income to live on, not to buy three Lamborghinis and have them sitting in your driveway. You know, that's not really wealth, but people have this crazy cockeyed view of it. And a lot of people are like that.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I
2: mean, even people you would think ought to not be that way. Stuff,
3: stuff, things doesn't equal wealth.
2: They Uh, all devalue and depreciate over time.
3: Yeah. And, to, to your point, uh, you know, viewing it like a checking account, most people are accustomed to some form or another of growth investing, because that's what most people had been doing through their employer plan, dollar cost averaging, putting into a 401k. And that's building wealth. they that, that's they've building, they built wealth that way. Um, but when you're investing for growth, what do you have to look at you know when you're using the the house analogy you have the property and what somebody's willing to pay for it that's, that, right. that's what you have you don't have the rent you 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 have a raw piece of land that you're hoping they're going to develop something next to it that's that's the growth investor um, and in the accumulation phase you're buying little pieces of raw land in different areas different zip codes diversifying but when you start needing that money to live on, then there's that mind mindset that has to change because
2: you have to look at those stocks and investments that you've bought as income generators. And sometimes that involves doing some portfolio reconstruction, changing out of pure growth into things that might produce both growth and income. So that you're not selling your stuff in order to, to live, especially in a down market. Yeah. And when we say down market, I
3: think the last three years, really, I mean, the last probably five years, um, it it's in some ways spoiled people. You, you think of 2020, um, that you had a very quick... Drop in the market and then a a very quick rebound in the market. Twenty twenty two was not fun, but you know it was it was a down, and then twenty twenty three was kind of flat for most of the year till the end of it. But you can have periods where growth doesn't grow for a long period of time. Right, it's been a long time since we've seen that kind of a period. Really, since the financial crisis.
4: That's
2: right.
3: Um, and. Growth investing can go through a long period. And so if you're, let's say you get into a three to five year period. Where growth doesn't necessarily grow much, it bounces all over the place. But there's actually net net, it's not growing in value. Right. So that's your back to the the housing and land. That's your raw land that's not going up. So to that's your right. point, you're you are having need to that income. Sell that raw land. That's right. And so you're, as you said before, eating your seed corn. You're exactly. you're liquidating your shares. Whereas if it were producing
2: dividends, yep. all that time, up, down, sideways, you're at least getting the dividends, even though your portfolio is not growing. And that's right. better than not getting dividends. Right. And the the portfolio,
3: it, it should be a mixture of income, and this depends on where you are in life, a mixture of income through dividends, interest payments, um, and growth price appreciation potential Uh, so it's a combination of all those things and that the mix changes depending on where you are in life
1: sure perfect place to stop you're listening to the Tom Dupree show with Mike Johnson Chad Sturgill and our host Tom Dupree if you'd like to learn how we can help make your money work for you give us a call 859-233-0400 you can also schedule an appointment directly on our website, on our homepage, dupreefinancial.com. We'd love to see you and to give you a complimentary portfolio review. We'll be back in just a few minutes with more of the Financial Hour. Stay tuned. Don't you know fire in the
0: hall and nothing left to burn? I'd love to run out now. There's no way.
2: This is Tom Dupree. Retirement can be tricky. In order to produce the right amount of income from a retirement account without depleting the principal, you need to develop a mixture of growth and income. At Dupree Financial Group, we specialize in designing investment portfolios for retired and soon-to-be retired individuals by making investments in companies that produce both income and growth. Our process is simple to understand, but you need to make an appointment with us so we can explain it to you. Give us a call today at 859-233-0400 to set a time with us. Also, be sure to listen to the Tom Depree show at News Radio 630 WLAP on Saturday mornings and listen to us on your favorite podcast platform.
1: Welcome back to the Tom Dupree Show. For our financial hour, joining us, Mike Johnson, Chad Sturgill, our host, Tom Dupree, and we are powered by Dupree Financial Group.
2: Okay, this guy, this is Steely Dan also, but keep it playing. The vocalist is a guy named David Palmer. David Palmer, somebody was telling me about him. He was married to Carol King. Think. and wait a minute was he no no he wasn't married to her she was married to everybody else but not him four people he wasn't he wasn't one of them he asked her to marry her probably yeah because. he may have said, no. but he was the lyricist this says of that hit of hers called jazz man she you know this guy was he worked uh, with people after steely dan i'm sure he and uh uh, well fagan finally bounced him out um he was also on countdown to ecstasy uh no wait a minute uh he sued (laughs) steely dan for yeah there was bad blood between him and donald fagan it sounds like but anyway he's on this uh, david palmer now i don't know if he's related to Robert Palmer, who uh, had his own career. (laughs)
1: You are going down a rabbit hole.
4: When who was Emerson Lake and Palmer? No, that's British. Yep. (laughs) Robert Palmer had the Simply Irresistible video. With the the blonde. It's not the same. It's not the same.
2: I think they are all three different Palmers. (laughs) Okay. There's a lot of Palmers out there. I don't believe they're related. But this... I'd never had actually thought much about who did the vocals on any of these songs. Steely Dan had a lot of personnel coming and going and Donald Fagan and Walter Becker were very strange people. They didn't say much. They were oddballs. I mean, anything you read or hear about them, they were very smart, brilliant, musicians but they didn't like to get in front of people they really like to be around people yeah this uh guy um uh, michael O'Martian, said they would do a take and it would sound really good and then walter becker would be sitting there and they'd say well you you guys want to go get a beer and he'd go no and how about dinner no you know the guy didn't want to go out and be with anybody It, it would just Kind of that way. Yeah. yeah they were very heady and sort of cerebral. So anyway, hmm. kind of like me, right? No, <laughs> not at all. It, well,
4: <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> okay, go ahead. That just goes without saying,
2: Tom, no, you're that, cerebral that and heady. Didn't need to be said. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> you know, th- this thing that you did in the last – Segment. It makes me think a lot about. I read that uh, Ed Kirshner is now with a mutual fund group called Thread Needle. I don't know. Have you heard of them? Yeah, they've Columbia funds, uh, Columbia. I think that was the former Bank of America funds. They bought Threadneedle.
4: Okay. So it's a pretty big organization.
2: Yeah, Yeah. I hadn't heard of them. And, of course, all these companies change their names from time to time.
4: And they'll change between now and next week, too. Sure.
2: Well, Kirshner is still around. He's their chief investment strategist. It's great. I'm glad he's out there because he kind of crashed in 0102. That hurt a lot of people's careers. But um, the people that kept the long vision – about what was ultimately going to happen have been right. Mm -hmm. There was this, I've seen it in my career. I've been doing this for 45 years. The year I came in the business was the year people started contributing to IRAs and 401ks. That was the beginning of it. Today, what is 15, 20, $30 trillion in them or some big number. And that was the power of compounding inside of a tax-deferred account where you didn't have to pay tax on it. And, of course, the government, uh, over their lack is chomping at the bit over the next several years is a lot of these IRAs and 401Ks become distributed and are taxed. Um, I don't know how much over time that will actually bring the Treasury, but it – it will bring them a lot, and it is in the process of bringing them a lot as some of these people pass away. But you're not having uh, a lot of folks in their 90s probably don't have IRAs because you know they were in their 40s or 50s when they started, and um, many of them may not have been in their peak years and contributing at the time, or they might have said that's something for young people. So you probably don't have as many – people in their 90s, now as you get to people in their 60s, 70s, and 80s who pass away and who did have large IRAs, mm-hmm. then you'll begin to see more of this begin to get taxed and the government will collect their 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 money on them.
3: Right, so, right.
2: And it's kind of a, a side note too, but that's uh,
3: where some of the the planning comes into play uh, depending on what the goals are of the person. If it's, you know, to leave it for heirs – uh, there might be things to do where you know you you well, the you only heir you
2: can really leave it tax free to is your spouse.
3: Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, they they claim it as their own. Uh, but <clears throat> if they're going to leave it to children, if that's the main goal, and the kids are in a higher tax bracket, maybe it makes sense to convert some of that to a Roth IRA uh, to save some of the taxes later on or d- different things. But th- those are different planning uh, uh considerations, but. What the the big thing we were talking about uh, last segment was you know the income needs um, either to supplement or replace or replace most of uh, your job income when you retire the the need for income is going to become greater and greater and you everything rhymes in the market. You don't, there's, there's nothing new, certain things that are out right now. Um, so there was, a Jason Zweig article. Um, and it's, uh, the title of it's a fund with a 94.9% yield. You guessed that there's a catch. Uh, he, he goes, you're talking earlier, Ed Kirshner. Um, he has a, uh, an advertisement in the wall street journal from 1986. And, uh, it was a, Putnam Option Income Trust Two, uh, it says looking for high rates and it has fifteen and a quarter percent listed on here. Oh, that
2: was just a high yield leveraged high yield fund.
3: Exactly, it was a it was a, an option uh, fund on bonds. And what you're seeing now, you're seeing more and more of these covered call option ETFs, and uh, 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 and they're probably leveraged also. Uh, probably, um, but. This is where you have to be careful as an investor, because when you're looking at a fund, uh, an ETF, a mutual fund, whatever it may be, um, you'll see a yield uh, dividend and it'll it'll, it'll show a yield distribution yield. Um, So, like, for example, one of these, it's this is the weird part. It's it's a ETF, uh, but it's only on this one was on Tesla. So it only owns Tesla stock, and it does covered call options on Tesla stock, which not to get in the weeds, but that's just a way, it's a derivative uh, trying to generate more income. Right. Um, it can add a lot of volatility. But the fund, the ETF, shows a yield of, you know, say 20 plus percent. Well, that's, that's the distribution yield, which... The distribution yield. Bear with me for a second. The distribution yield is the last dividend that was paid in relation to the current share price. A distribution yield can come from capital gains. Yeah, it can come from. They don't differentiate. They don't when, differentiate when they
2: put that on there.
3: So you could have. You could actually have a growth mutual fund, that just a regular mutual
2: fund that has a big distribution a, uh, and they count it as their yield and yeah. so you're looking at it and thinking wow it's a great yield yeah, yeah. i'm gonna get i, need, after I the, need income i'm going into retirement you got to be very income. careful you, what you have to look at if you want to invest in something like that look at the history of the dividends over time yeah and look at how the dividend is being generated because there are some of There are some things that actually are borrowing to pay the dividend. Actually, some big companies that are doing that. And this is where it pays to have an advisor that's doing this kind of homework and looking at this stuff because you can – We had uh, uh, some clients tell us, well, we're going to do our own research and invest our own money, and these people are doctors, uh, medical doctors. And so I think about the learning curve that is going to be involved in – if if the research is is well-informed, they could – maybe be able to do okay but you're going to make some mistakes along the way and these things happen and they can be very expensive the only reason i say that is i know i've made some expensive mistakes in the past and uh, it involves an awareness of one's own shortcomings and the ability to say i don't really know completely what i'm looking at I need some help with this. Depend on other people for uh, some of your advice. Mm -hmm. And,
3: you know, you look at some of the funds uh, i mean what what comes to my mind is like during the the financial crisis 0809 uh you had you know these closed in funds were the hot thing at the time and some some closed in funds out there uh, they had leverage on top of leveraged companies and you saw a lot of those things just go kaput you know, back during the financial yeah, crisis. Yeah, they, they they got upside down. Uh, they and, got upside down. And, and, they had and, to and liquidate. equity
2: got wiped yeah. out.
3: even if the underlying stock survived, the fund was wiped out because they had to essentially liquidate the fund. SRQ.
2: And, yeah,
3: uh, yes, exactly. That was
2: uh, one that, that, that had a lot of trouble. Right. And it was a, a leveraged uh, REIT fund. Mm-hmm. Um, so...
3: You have to be careful getting back to the income. You have to understand how the income is derived. Being generated. Exactly. Um, Is it synthetic or is it organic?
2: One of the things that we look at, so we we own a lot of companies that uh, pay dividends. Um, And I'm not going to name a name of one, but I'll just say well what if one of them was say maybe what if one was chevron i mean we're not saying chevron but what if one were chevron so you go and look at what they're paying out in terms of dividend and then you want to look at how much free cash flow is being produced by that company And how much of it are they paying out on the dividend? Because the dividend is not an expense. It's a sharing of the profits. The company cannot write off dividend payments. They cannot expense them. They can expense interest payments, but not dividend payments. And therefore... uh, You have to understand that a dividend is always at the pleasure of the board. The board has to declare the dividend. If they pay quarterly dividends, they got to declare a dividend four times a year. And uh, you don't have to declare a bond payment. That's just – that's in the – It's an obligation. It's an obligation. It's in the – It's in the financials. They have to pay the interest on their bonds. They have to pay the interest on their bank notes. It's got to be done. Got to pay the principal when it comes due. That's just a cost of doing a business. A dividend is not a cost of doing business. It's something that the board elects to do. Consequently, dividends are taxed at a slightly lower rate than our interest payments. Because it's a different thing altogether. And so if you're calculating a div- or looking at a dividend on a, on a stock or some sort of uh, investment, one of the things to do is look at how much coverage do they have in terms of free cash flow to pay this dividend. Now, if you're seeing that they're paying out 80% of their free cash flow in dividends, that's not a lot of cushion. But if they're paying forty or fifty percent of their cash flow in terms of, of dividends, well, there's there's some free cash flow cushion. Because free cash flow is cash flow that's being generated over and above all the costs of doing business. So you've got to be cognizant of where is this coming from? Does the company have plenty of financial flexibility? To pay the dividend, and over time, if profits go up, to raise the dividend. So,
4: when you look at some uh, details, when you get into you talk about knowing your company, knowing the business. I mean, there are companies out there. Some of these banks that got in trouble in the spring got in trouble because they were borrowing money at very um, low rates, and they were offering loans at very low rates. But then, uh, the money they were borrowing in the form of deposits from the share from uh, their customers. They couldn't compete. They couldn't. They couldn't get away with offering them a half a percent interest on their savings. So they had to raise the rates, and then they ended up underwater. So their free cash flow went from being great when they could could uh, pay nothing on deposits to being terrible where they were losing money just very quickly. So you've got to be cognizant of that. Even if the bank pays a dividend, it can't sustain it in that kind of an environment when you see a sudden shift like that. And uh, those are something. I mean, when we talk about these ETFs that are that are paying variable, essentially dividends because they, it's based on a lot of factors to, to be able to, you know, the price of the underlying stock, the the volatility out there, what they're able to get uh, from selling these options contracts. I mean, it's all over the map. It can turn on a dime, and that's what you saw in, in stocks. But we are trying to avoid names like that. When, we, when we're looking at names, we want to see, as Tom said, something that has a, a lower payout ratio. So when they take their free cash flow, they're able to take – just a portion of it and pay you a healthy dividend and that gives them room both to continue paying that dividend if if their business gets weak, even if it's temporarily, it also gives them an the opportunity to raise dividends. So you can right. get a raise, keep up with inflation. So there are a lot of reasons that you need to understand that uh what's driving the, the free cash flow and the dividend that you're getting from your company.
3: Right. Yeah, and the remember with a dividend paying stock you have the income stream, and then you still own the underlying shares. You own shares of the stock. And what volatile – They can go up in value. Exactly. Uh, Um, Especially if
2: they're increasing the dividend over time.
3: Yeah. And and they can go down in value too, which is what we saw happen in twenty in twenty twenty two. That never happened, and yeah. that's when you get the you know volatility, especially short term volatility, can provide you uh, opportunities both on the income side and on the long term right. growth side, because uh, it's it's all about the quality of the company and the price you are paying for the cash flow and uh, the the long term growth potential of the company.
4: Yep. And that's where it gets back to what something I believe very much which is in the short run the market is a voting machine In the long run it is a weighing machine. If you've got a quality company uh, that's able to grow their free cash flow, grow their dividends over time, prices are going to fluctuate in the short run uh, as some of them fall out of favor temporarily, but over the long run you're going to get a raise, you're going to see capital appreciation. Your your the value of your of your uh, stock is going to go up.
2: Yep. That's true. Typically, it has over time. Over time, if you give it enough time, absolutely. Well, if, if, the,
1: if the earnings
2: are increasing, if it's a growing business, then that should be the case.
1: You've been listening to the Tom Dupree Show. This is our financial hour with us. Mike Johnson, Chad Sturgill, and our host, Tom Dupree. If you'd like to come see us to learn how we can help make your money work for you, call us. 859-233-0400. You can also schedule an appointment directly on our homepage at duprefinancial.com. We appreciate you listening to our Financial Hour.